Good morning, church. I love you. And I love gathering together with you on the first day of the week. I love knowing that we have hundreds more who are watching and participating online and partnering with you to do the things that Jesus is calling us to do, not just here in this building, but just as importantly, what we do on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, what you do in your community, in our community, what our missionaries are doing around the world. I I cannot even begin to tell you how exciting it is to think about the, the life and the partnership that we have in the Lord with our brothers and sisters throughout the world. And we've been thinking about this idea of loyalty. And it's, it's relatively easy, isn't it, to be loyal to Jesus when we're in here, right? When we're in here. I just now thought about this little joke. You've probably heard it before. But somebody is praying and saying, God, today's been a really good day. I, I haven't really messed up today. I, I don't know that I've, I've sinned. I don't know that I've done anything I, I shouldn't have done. And I haven't said anything that I shouldn't have said. And, and everything is going pretty well. But I'm about to get out of bed, and it's going to get tough from here, you know? <laughs> and that's the way it is, isn't it? I mean, when you're, when you're here, when you're here, being loyal to Jesus is pretty simple. Singing these songs, saying these prayers, being surrounded by other believers. But you don't live your life in, in the church building. You go out to your workplace, and you go to school, and you go in your neighborhood, and you're, you're with your friends, and you, you're with your family, and, and sometimes in those environments, it can be hard to be faithful and loyal to Jesus, because not everyone shares your conviction, not everyone shares your allegiance, not everyone shares your loyalty, and sometimes in those environments, it can be incredibly difficult. In fact, one of the, the things that God's people have always had to deal with is this idea of shame. And I want us to think about what, what shame is for just a moment this morning. Shame might be defined as this, what we experience when we feel rejected, unwanted, or that we don't belong. Shame is often used to manipulate, control, and force people to conform. Have you experienced this, maybe? We... We, we experience this when we're, we're embarrassed, almost embarrassed to be who we are. We're embarrassed of who we are. We, we don't feel like we are accepted by our group. Whatever group it is that we want to be a part of, whatever group that we feel like we should be a part of, they have rejected us. And sometimes the group uses shame as a weapon against people to try to bully them into conforming to a certain way of of living life, to manipulate, to control. And maybe you experience that in in your family. Maybe you experience that within your friend group. Maybe you experience that at work. Maybe you experience that at school. But God's people have experienced this idea of of shame, being shamed for, for following Jesus and holding fast to certain convictions, since the very beginning. And there are various ways that people respond to shame. Let's think through that for just a moment. How how might we respond to shame? Well, one, one natural response to shame is this, that we fight to demonstrate our strength and preserve our honor. That's one way that people respond to shame, isn't it? 
When people try to embarrass you for being you, when people reject you, when they dishonor you, when they shame you, one natural response is to fight back to show people you can't push me around like that. You can't disrespect me like that. You need to honor me. I'm a strong person. I, I deserve to be respected. And so we, we might respond by fighting those who shame us to demonstrate that we're strong, to try to own our opponents, to shame them, to say we're the strong ones, we're the dominant ones. Another response that we might have to shame is that we follow the crowd. We compromise and conform. That's, that's the goal of shame. The goal of shame is to get you to stop holding fast to a certain way of doing things and do things like everyone else is doing them. And so one response to shame might be to, to do exactly what they want you to do and follow along. And in fact, sometimes we don't even realize that we're doing that, do we? And again, maybe, maybe you see these dynamics at work right now all around you. Maybe in the workplace, you've been asked to turn a blind eye to something that you know is unethical. Maybe you've seen people be mistreated. Maybe certain ethics or, or morals that are shifting in the culture around you, and you feel like if you stand up and do what's right, and you hold fast to your convictions, and you're loyal to King Jesus in whatever environment you find yourself in, you have been or you might be shamed for those convictions. And, and these are two of the ways that people tend to respond. They, they fight against the crowd, show their own strength and dominance, or they follow the crowd. But there's a, a third response, another way that we might respond to shame, and that is to endure the suffering and shame, to suffer shame with endurance. That's the hard one, isn't it? But there's really only one of these responses that is demonstrating loyalty to Jesus. There's really only one of these three that, that Scripture calls God's people to do. Respond this way. When the community shames you, when the community berates you, when they reproach you, when they insult you, even if they harm you, if you have to suffer for being a follower of Jesus, there's only one of these three that Scripture calls us to, to live out as a demonstration of our loyalty to King Jesus. So which one is it? How should we respond when others insult us, reject us, mock us? Maybe it's not even words that they say. Maybe it's just the way that they look at you or the tone of voice that they take. How is it that we should respond to that kind of treatment? Well, the book of Hebrews is, is incredibly helpful in this. So many of the books of the New Testament because our brothers and sisters in Christ in the first century were dealing with this. In fact, the book of Hebrews is written to a group of Christians who are suffering shame for following Jesus. And the Hebrew writer is writing to them to encourage them in that kind of a situation. And he's telling them, you're not the first ones. You're not the first ones of God's people to, to suffer this kind of mistreatment because you are being loyal to God. 
You're, you're not the first ones to suffer for your faith. And so he reminds them of their ancestors. He reminds them of those who've gone before them, people like Moses, and reminds them of things that their ancestors in the faith have, have suffered and reminds them that what you're going through right now is not unique and that others before you have been here. He tells them about the time when their ancestors were slaves in Egypt and they were being horribly oppressed and mistreated. In fact, Pharaoh was so afraid of the Israelite people, the Hebrew people, that he ordered that the males, the male babies be killed. And one couple, when their male child was born, they hid him and they protected him. And then, of course, that, that baby was placed in a basket in a river and Pharaoh's daughter found that baby and then raised that baby as her own in the palace. And he reminds them of that story. So if you have your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 11, starting verse 23, he says this, by faith Moses when he was born, he was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful or special or extraordinary. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, now what does that mean? And, and why is the Hebrew writer telling his audience that? That Moses' parents weren't afraid of the king's edict. I don't think that that means that they were just like, totally nonchalant about the fact that Pharaoh is trying to exterminate and kill all of these babies. It doesn't mean that their heart didn't have palpitations. It doesn't mean that their heart wasn't beating fast. It means that they didn't give in to that fear. They didn't acquiesce. They didn't back down. They didn't go along with what Pharaoh said to do. Pharaoh said, these babies are all going to die, and they didn't go along with that. They they defied his orders, and they hid their baby. Why? Because they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh, right? Now, why is the, the writer of this book telling his audience that? He's saying, because you've, you've had ancestors in the faith who were oppressed by the, the rulers and powers and authorities, and they didn't fear them. They did what was right, even though they were being oppressed, even though they were being harmed. Look at verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. I love the way he frames that, don't you? Because he, he has this picture, Moses, he's been raised in, in Pharaoh's house, he's been raised in the palace, and then at some point Moses has to decide, who are my people? Who are my people? Where do I live out my life? Because it would have been really easy, wouldn't it, to, to spend the rest of his life in the lap of luxury, to live in comfort. To, to live with all of the, the niceties that that time period had to offer. It had been wonderful to, to just continue living there. But instead, he chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He could have just stayed in the palace, but instead he chose, those are my people, and I'm going to suffer with them. I'm going to be loyal to them. I'm going to be faithful to them. 
I'm not going to abandon them. I mean, imagine all the things that Moses could have said. He could have said, I'm only one man. I'm only one person. What good would it, what good would it do if I got down there and suffered with them? They're slaves. They're being mistreated. They're oppressed. Nobody likes them. I, I, have, I have power. I, I, have, I have a place of honor. I'm on the inside. Maybe I can use my influence for good and I'll just, I'll just stay here and, and stay here and do this and live this way. But instead he said, no, no, no. Those are my people. And I'm going to be with them. I'm going to suffer mistreatment with them. Now again, what the Hebrew writer is saying to his audience in this book, in Hebrews 11, it's, it's about Moses, but it's not so much about Moses. It's more about them, isn't it? Because he's telling them, these Christians in the first century, he's telling them this, if you want to be like Moses, and these are good Jewish people, good Jewish Christians, and of course they want to be like Moses, this great hero of faith. If you want to be like Moses, then this is what you need to do. You need to choose to suffer mistreatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. This is what it looks like to be loyal to Jesus, is that you choose, you choose loyalty over luxury. You choose loyalty over luxury. You say, those are my people. Those are my brothers and sisters being mistreated. Those are my people being oppressed. Those are my brothers and sisters that are, that are being kicked out of their homes, that are being shamed, that are being spit upon, that are being mocked. Those are my brothers and sisters. And I won't be ashamed to call them my family. And I'll give up my luxury in order to practice loyalty. I choose loyalty over luxury. He's telling these first century Christians, if you want to be a person of faith, that's how you need to live. If you want to be like Moses, that's how you need to live. You need to choose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So we all have that choice, don't we? You and I could be the person in the palace who says, well, what good would it do for me to suffer? I'm on the inside. I, I've got the power. I've got the money. I've got the resources. I've got all of these things. I'll just use them for, for all of the... And, and the Hebrew writer says, no, no, no. Sometimes you have to choose loyalty to God, loyalty to Jesus, loyalty to the people of God over luxury and power and comfort. And you have to be willing to let go of those things and suffer along with the people of God. Why? Because they're your family. They're your brothers. They're your sisters. And that's what Moses did. And he says that was, that was faith. That's what faith looks like. Again, faith isn't just what we think in our mind or what we feel in our heart. It's how we live out our lives. And living loyalty, loyally to, to King Jesus Living loyally to Yahweh, to God, means being willing to suffer along with God's people rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And I love how he says it's fleeting because it's fleeting, isn't it? It's temporary. I, I mean, you could just, just 
hang out, be comfortable, and just enjoy your life and say, you know what, I know my brothers and sisters in Christ are suffering around the world, and I know they're being mistreated. I know that my brothers and sisters, even in my own backyard, even in my own neighborhood are being mistreated. I, I know that brothers and sisters, even in my own congregation are being mistreated, but that's not my problem. I'm just going to live my life. I'm just going to be comfortable. I'm just going to take care of my family. And the Hebrew writer is saying, you can do that. Just enjoy the pleasures of sin, but they're fleeting. It's going to be gone like that. If you want a home that lasts forever, if you want something that endures, if you want something that's unshakable, then you have to be loyal to God to Jesus and to his people, which means you have to say, those are my brothers and sisters. And if they're being mistreated, then I'm willing to be mistreated along with them. I'm not ashamed to call them my family because they are my family. Look at verse 26. Moses considered, I love the way he frames this, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. See, he says that Moses' faithfulness, by Moses being faithful to God, to Yahweh, in a sense, in a sense, he was being loyal to King Jesus. Even though this is thousands of years before Jesus was born, he was being faithful and loyal to the coming anointed one, to the coming Messiah, to the coming Christ, by being loyal to God in his time. He was loyal to the Messiah. And he considered, he counted these reproaches, these insults, being mocked, being mistreated, greater, greater wealth, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. What is wealth? What did he consider wealth? The reproach of Christ. The reproach of Christ, being reproached along with Jesus and his people, is great wealth. Not only is it great wealth, it is greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. That's what faith looks like. Faith, that, faith says being mistreated with God's people, being reproached with God's people, suffering the shame with God's people. Sharing the sufferings of Jesus is great wealth. Not only is it great wealth, it's greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt or any other nation or empire or kingdom. But do we, do we think that way? Do we think that way? Do we, do we honestly believe blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake? Do you believe that? It's what Jesus said, but do you believe that? Do you believe that to be slandered and to be mistreated and to be mocked and to be spit upon for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom is an honor, that it's greater wealth than all the treasures of the world? The Hebrew writer says, that's what it looks like to be a person like Moses. If you want to be like Moses, if you want to be like the faithful who've gone before you, then be willing to be content, enduring, and suffering shame and mistreatment. And this is what Paul says as well 
In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, provided we suffer with him. In order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider, here's what Paul says, this is Romans 8, 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He says, if you have to, if you've got to, have to weigh in the balance the suffering that we're going through right now as followers of Jesus compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us, it doesn't even compare. It doesn't even compare. And church, I, I know. I know it's hard. Whatever it is that you've suffered for the sake of Jesus, I know it's hard. You may have lost a job. You may have lost a spouse. You may have lost relationships with people that you've known for years because of your faithfulness to Jesus. And that hurts. There is no minimizing what you've suffered. But the church today, especially the church here in this place, has not even begun to see suffering and shame the way that our brothers and sisters around the world today and throughout history have suffered. Isn't that true? We haven't even begun to see that, and I don't know if we'll see that or not, but I know if we do and when we do, this is how we're supposed to think about it, to consider it, to consider ourselves blessed to suffer for the, the sake of Jesus and his people. To say, I would rather suffer mistreatment with the people of God than I would enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. I consider it, he's saying. Moses is saying. I consider it great wealth to suffer reproach, the reproach of Christ. Greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. But so often, even when we're faced with the prospect of suffering shame, what do we do? We fight or we follow, right? Either we go along with the crowd so that we don't have to be shamed, we go along with the crowd so that we don't have to, be, to, to suffer, or we fight them. We show how strong we are. You can't treat me that way. You can't treat our people that way. Is that what we're called to do? To fight or to follow them? Look at verse 27. By faith, Moses left Egypt not being afraid. There's that term again. Not being afraid of the anger of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Again, Moses feared God, not Pharaoh. And that's the thing, isn't it? When you fear God, you don't have to fear anyone else. When you fear God, you don't have to fear anyone else. Again, that doesn't mean that Moses' heart didn't beat fast at the prospect of being killed by Pharaoh, but it means he didn't follow what Pharaoh wanted him to do. He didn't back down. He didn't give in. He didn't compromise. He didn't go along. He did what was right. He did what was right. He was loyal. He was faithful to God no matter what it costs him. And that's what faith looks like. He endured. He endured. That's what 
being loyal, being faithful, giving our allegiance to God is all about. It's enduring the present in light of the future. We know what's coming. Moses knew, in a sense, by faith what was coming. And because he did, and because he could see the one who can't be seen with eyes, because he could see the invisible one, because he feared the invisible one, he didn't have to fear what he could see. But our focus so often is on what we can see, the people that we can see, the things that we can see. And we are terrified of losing those things. We are terrified of those things being used against us. And the Hebrew writer is writing to his audience to say, if you want to be people that are loyal to King Jesus, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of the crowd. Don't be afraid of what the crowd is going to say. Don't be afraid of what the crowd is going to do. Fear God and you don't have to fear anyone else. Be faithful to him. Be loyal to him. Trust him. Follow him. Verse 28, by faith, Moses kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. That's kind of a negative place to end that part of the story, isn't it? But it's not. See, when you are, when you're oppressed, when you're being persecuted by evil, and wickedness. You want to know, is God going to let this endure forever? Is God going to let this last forever? Is it always going to be this way? And the answer is no. God will set everything right. God will bring justice. Justice for the oppressed and justice against those who are doing the oppressing. God will bring the justice. You don't have to fight them. You don't have to destroy them. God will. What you have to do is be faithful. Put the blood over your doorpost. The angel of death will come and he will pass over you and he will take care of the enemies of God. Walk through on dry ground and you will be just fine if you are being loyal and faithful to God. And when the enemies of God try to do the same, they'll be destroyed. It's good news, church. It's good news that justice will be served. It's good news that God will set everything right. Because that means not only do you not need to follow along with the crowd, you also don't need to fight the crowd. God's going to take care of them. Stop being afraid and thinking that they're going to be victorious. They're not going to win. Anything opposed to God, anything standing against God will not win, will not prosper. God will set everything right. Skip down to chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 1. Hebrews 12 and verse 1. He says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, or even martyrs, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There's that word, run with Endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured, there's that word again, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What does it mean that he despised the shame? It means he didn't give in to the shame. 
the shame of people did not cause Jesus to change his course. He remained faithful. He remained loyal. He remained true. He did what he was called to do. And in the face of unbelievable humiliation and shame, he despised the shame. And the Hebrew writer is calling his audience to do the same. Endure what you're going through. Endure it and despise the shame. Don't go along with the shame. Don't let them shame you into changing course. Be faithful. Be true. Give Jesus your allegiance and remain committed to him. Be unshakable in your commitment to him. You don't have to fear them. You don't have to go along with them. Jesus allowed himself to be treated like a shameful criminal. And he didn't once fight for respect. He didn't once fight for honor. And he didn't once follow along with the crowd and compromise in order for them to respect him. Why? Because he knew what God was going to do. That God was going to glorify him and that God was going to honor him. So what's the application of what the Hebrew writer is saying? Be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. Endure what you're going through. Despise the shame. Run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look at verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You haven't yet gone through what Jesus went through. But here's what we do. Endure from sinners hostility. That's what God's people have always had to do. We're sometimes shocked, aren't we? We're surprised when we're treated with hostility, when we're treated with reproach, when people mock us and shame us for, for following Jesus. And I don't know why we're surprised when over and over again in the New Testament, Jesus told and the apostles told people, if you're going to follow Jesus, this is what it's going to look like. This is what it means to follow Jesus, is you take up your cross and you follow him. And you are going to have to endure what he endured. Hostility from sinners. And he reminds them of this so that, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's loyalty. That's allegiance. That's faithfulness. Don't grow weary. Don't grow faint-hearted. He reminds them that Jesus has saved us through his loyalty. Because I know we all, we all think about our loyalty to Jesus and say it, it's not what it ought to be. I'm not as faithful to him as I wish that I was. The good news is that we are first and foremost saved by the loyalty of Jesus. Saved by the faithfulness of Jesus because he did this. Because he went to the cross. Because he endured. Because he was faithful to his father and to his mission. We are saved by his faithfulness. We are saved because he didn't give up, because he didn't compromise, because he didn't fight back, because he did what he was called to do. But then, in faithfulness and loyalty, we are called to do this, the same. So we could say this, we demonstrate our loyalty to Jesus when we faithfully endure the reproach of the crowd without following or fighting them. 
in our fear, we are going to be tempted to either follow the crowd or fight the crowd when they reproach us. When they insult us, when they shame you, you're going to be tempted in your fear to either follow them or fight them. And what Jesus calls us to do is faithfully endure. Faithfully endure shame. Faithfully endure suffering. Faithfully endure hostility. Because you know, you know by faith that this, this suffering, this hostility, this reproach is only for a moment. And you consider this hostility, you consider this suffering, you consider this mistreatment to be greater wealth than all the treasures of the world. And you consider it an honor to suffer for the sake of Jesus. See, the cross calls us to rethink how we think about everything. And Jesus calls us to not only trust in what he has done at the cross, but to take up our cross and follow him. That's what we're doing when we're baptized. Yes, we are we are asking God for forgiveness. We're appealing to God for mercy and grace and salvation. But we're also pledging our allegiance, our loyalty to King Jesus. To say, I will endure the reproach of the crowd I will faithfully endure the reproach of the crowd, not because I'm strong, but because you are. Not because I'm good, but because you are. Not because I'm even faithful, but because you are. I will strive to endure faithfully whatever comes my way because of what you have done for me. When we're baptized, that's what we're pledging ourselves to. We're dying to ourselves. We're being buried with Jesus and then being raised up to live this life This life where we're saying, I choose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Come what may, I'm with Jesus and I'm with his people. Maybe there's somebody here though that needs to recommit their life to him. You've already been baptized, but you need to recommit your life to Jesus. Or maybe you're suffering and you're hurting and you're struggling and your loyalty is being tested. And you need your brothers and sisters in Christ to surround you with love and prayer. Our shepherds would love to pray with you in the prayer room or you can come forward now. Together we stand. Sing this song.